as we go through a passage of scripture this morning, we end with the words you'll see on the screen. And he, meaning Peter, went outside and wept bitterly. That's where our passage of scripture ends today. And you may know that we're going through the final week of Jesus' life, and you could look in on that verse and think Peter is weeping bitterly because Christ has been arrested, he's going to be tried, or because he's been crucified. But, but that's not the reason people, Peter is weeping bitterly. You, you could for any of those reasons. But if you know the story and the life of Peter, then you know this morning that we come to a moment in his life that, that he is known for. It's a moment of great personal failure. It's a moment that really is a defining moment in his life where he would look back on it and say, if I could do it again, this moment would be different. It's really a moment that he is remembered for and known for. And these moments still happen today. I was reminded this week of a story from 2013, a woman named Jessica. She was a public relations executive. She had 200 followers on Twitter. And as she was getting on a plane to fly to a foreign country, she wrote, which is undeniably an awful racist tweet, and got, sent that out to her 200 followers and got on the plane. Well, as you might imagine, it was a long flight, I think 12 or 14 hours. By the time she landed, there was viral outrage over her tweet. She had a whole lot more followers. Her reputation was permanently damaged, and she lost her job. I'm not sure before the plane landed, but soon after that for one tweet. And, 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 you know, and again, an awful tweet. So whether it's Peter or Jessica or others of us, we maybe know these moments where we've made a life-defining decision and things have gone wrong. The moments where you just want to crawl away, get into bed, and just forget it all happened. Now, now whether it's a life-defining moment, we probably all know moments in the course of a week or the course of a month where we look back and say, could I have a do-over there? You know, could I do that one again? Could we just roll back the clock and I just missed it there? And whether it's the big ones or the little ones, we know the pain, the shame, the embarrassment of some of these moments where we are just not the person that we want to be. And so we come this morning to look in on Peter. And part of what we're going to do this morning is see how Peter got to this point he got to. Peter, how, how did this happen? How did your downfall occur? And we're simply looking in to learn from Peter. If this is how Peter fell, if this is what he did, and there was plenty of warning signs. It was clear all the way along. You could say, Peter, pay attention. This is not going to end well. And he misses it. And the end is this moment of bitter loss. And so we're going to look in and we're going to learn from Peter. But here's the other thing that if you know this story of Peter's downfall, you also know that that's not where the story ends. It's a story of hope and restoration. And at the end of this story, we get to see such wonderful words of hope that really contain the Christian message for us. And for any of our own moments, whether it be a life-defining moment or a moment of failure in the last month or year, Peter's moment can help reframe our own moment. 
So that's our journey today. We're in Luke chapter 22, and just invite you to open up your Bibles, to turn them on so you can follow along. And as you're looking for those, that passage in Luke 22, let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor, and Harbor Online, welcome to you whenever you're watching, and we just pray that the Lord would strengthen and encourage you as we look into these scriptures this morning. So it's Luke chapter 22. Uh, we're going to read through about four different parts of what's happening with Jesus in the last week. We, last, we left off last Sunday. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, which is commonly called, we called it the First Communion. And now Jesus is still in the upper room with his disciples. And so we're going to see some dialogue after that. We're going to see a move to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then from there, we're going to see the betrayal and the arrest. And there from there, we will move to the, the Jewish trial and Jesus or Peter in the courtyard as the trial is happening. So really four scenes. We could spend, we could spend four weeks on each of these four scenes, but we are trying to, or we are going to get to uh, Luke 24, which is Easter Sunday, on Easter Sunday, which is two weeks away. So we're going to do the rest of chapter 22 today. But the way Luke writes this is he weaves it all together to tell us Peter's story. So, so in some ways, Luke wanted us to see Peter's journey here and where it ends. And so that is our journey as well today. So what I have as we go along is we see Peter's downfall. Really what I have is four ways, four things we can learn from Peter in how we avoid our own downfall, or why did Peter have a downfall, and I've just put them in personal terms. Here's the first one. Here's the first one, how we avoid a downfall. We avoid, it's this, overconfidence in our own strength. Firstly, we're going to look in here and see how Peter was overconfident in his own strength. Look down to verse 24 in Luke 22. Let me read it. A dispute arose among them, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So communion has just ended. This wonderful moment where they've shared the common loaf and the common cup, and now there's going to be this, some discussion around the table. And if you're Jesus, don't you just want to put your heads, your hand in your head, uh, however that, whatever the phrase is, put your head in your hands and just say, you know, guys, and here the disciples are back to this common argument amongst them. Who's the greatest, right? And they're having this discussion. We know this has occurred other times in scripture. It's like, they're not just happy to, to assess their own greatness. They want others to see how great they are. And so after communion, that's the discussion around the table. And it's in that context of wanting to sort of elevate their own greatness, that the next thing comes, and we'll go down to verse 31. Jesus tries to put it in a little bit of context in the next verses, but then we get down to verse 31, and Peter's been trying to claim how great he is, and look what Jesus says to him. Just looks him straight in the eyes. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Where, where does that start? Jesus looking at Simon and saying, Simon, Satan wants to destroy you. The great accuser, the great adversary wants to ruin your life. He wants to see you fall and fail and he wants to wipe you out. 
That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. And you think of all the responses he could have had. Lord, tell me more. What do you mean? How could this happen? Or simply, God, just, Jesus, just pray for me now. But none of those responses from Peter, what's his response? Lord, I'm ready. And I think he was sincere in this. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. What's he confident in? He's confident in his own strength. I can do this. I'm good. Nothing to worry about here, Jesus. Thanks for the warning, but I am just doing fine. Where's, why is he in danger? Because he's counting in his own strength in this moment. You know the children's series that C.S. Lewis wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the story of four kids who go to the land of Narnia, and there, one, the younger brother, Edmund, gets captured or gets into trouble with the White Witch and her Turkish delight. But if you've read that book and you, know what's, you see what's coming, you know Edmund is being led astray. Every, the, all the readers know it and the children know it. Everybody knows it. At one point, Lucy says this to Edmund, she's a witch. She's the worst thing in the world. And then later on, the character named Mr. Beaver, here's what he says to Edmund, all the same, Edmund, she is not a friend of Narnia. On the contrary, she is a dangerous enemy, a sorceress, a wicked queen who has brought everlasting winter to Narnia. And they're warning Edmund. And they're saying, Edmund, don't go near that. And he just persists and heads right along. When are we in the most danger? When are we in the most danger is when we think we are not in danger. When we think we're fine, we're good, we're strong, it's at that moment that actually we are in the most danger of falling. And that's what Peter reminds us of. To not be overconfident in our own strength. Any one of us at any time is vulnerable to any temptation. And this morning, as you hear about great downfalls, if you and your heart are saying, oh, this is nice, but this doesn't apply to me, be warned. Be warned. You're in danger. You're in danger. The greatest danger we have is when we think we are not in danger. So that's how Peter's downfall starts. He's overconfident in his own strength. And when we sort of know this naturally, what happens in our own lives when we get confident in and of ourselves, we become prayerless. And that's exactly the next thing that happens to Peter. He, we are under-invested in prayer, whether it be Peter or us. And look down to verse 39 and see what happens next. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you will not fall into temptation.'" He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. With sweat, was, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And so Luke records next. Did you hear how he wrote that? It's like they went to the place by the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus always prayed. The disciples saw Jesus model prayer. This is why Judas knows where to find them. They're going to the place where Jesus always prayed at night. And then we see Christ just in such anguish. He's on his knees laying down. God, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But then this beautiful picture of Jesus surrendering to God's will 
in that moment. It's such a great picture, and he's praying, and then he comes back. He said it twice to his disciples. First, guys, pray so you don't fall into temptation, and then he comes back, and they're asleep, and he's like, get up, and probably people in Jesus' day stood standing up, so Jesus is saying to them, hey, guys, stand up. Stand up. Don't, don't sleep. Stand up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Maybe they had seen Jesus, you know, lay down in anguish, and they thought, oh, let's just sit down and pray, and soon they were knocked out sound asleep. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's coming and he's looking at his disciples twice saying, keep praying. Don't give up on prayer. And what I appreciate about Jesus is the second time he comes back and says to them, keep praying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Even when your prayer life is a failure, the disciples were not a model of prayer at that moment, but he's saying, even when you're a failure in prayer, just keep praying. Go back to prayer. You guys haven't prayed well, you haven't prayed at all, but go back to prayer in this moment. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. I was reminded about two months ago, some of you know I was on a missions trip and we were sort of coming to the end of that time and we had a a full day in front of us where we had sort of a trip planned and we were gonna go into the city, only about 30 kilometers, but the traffic is so bad that could take four or five hours. And so we had agreed that we were going to get up early in the morning to try to beat the traffic and get there. And I had said to our hosts, I said, now, we're Canadians. And so whatever time you tell us to be ready, we will be ready at that time. In fact, probably three minutes earlier. So just whatever time you're going to come, we don't mind. We want to go early. Just tell us so we can get a full amount of sleep and you'll be there. And they said, okay, Jeff, we get it. You're Canadian. Yep, we'll tell you the right time. Because sometimes, you know, in other countries, they, they tell you a time, but they know you're going to be late. And so they, you know, plan that in. I said, you don't need to plan it in. We're very reliable. They said, Jeff, we'll be ready at 5. We'll be there at 5.45 to get to go to town. So I said, oh, great. This is good. So we get up about 5 o'clock, and, uh, or at least I did. And uh, you go to get a shower, and then for about the fourth day of 10 days in our hotel, there was no running water, so you've got no shower, you've got no toilet. After a long trip, your digestive system is not doing well, and so not having a toilet or running water in the toilet, enough said there. You know, you got a little bit of bottled water, so you're trying to brush your teeth and wet down my hair. No breakfast because we're up too early. In fact, later on, the only thing we could find for breakfast was these little wafer crackers with strawberry cream inside, which didn't make it. I never want to eat those again in my life but we were hungry that's all we had so there's the deal right we're up we're dirty we're tired there's no breakfast and we are there as good Canadians at 5:42, ready to be picked up you know what time our hosts arrived sometime after 6 30 right with no apology because they were just coming when they could right it's like guys we're Canadians we like them <laughs> So then we get in the car, and it was sort of this moment, right, where we're all staying there for 45 minutes. No one's really talking to anybody, because you're just like, if I'm going to talk, we're just going to sin right now. So let's just be quiet. <laughs> let's just be quiet and just not say anything. So that's about the mood. You know this mood. So then we get in the car, and we get in the car, and we start driving to town. Not too much traffic on the road yet. And then our hosts say to me, Jeff, what, what are the final arrangements? And I said, I thought you were making the final arrangements. And they said, no, Jeff, you know him better than we do. You were making the arrangements. And I said, well, I've met him twice. You've met him once. And he speaks French, and I don't speak any French. And he doesn't speak any English. So I thought you were making the arrangements. So a little bit of moment of tension there. So then our host said, well, since I speak French, I'll call him. So we called him on the phone, woke him up out of bed. Not a good sign. And I just know enough French to know that this was not going well. The arrangements had not been made. So we're sitting on the side of the road, dirty, tired, late, and now with no plan. 
And it was a moment where you just start to feel things well up inside of you. And I remember at this moment, my prayer to God was, and, and I hadn't prayed that morning. In fact, I had had lots of time to pray because I didn't take a shower. I just sat on my bed and sulked because I had no water. And in that moment, I just said, Lord, this has not been a good morning, right? I should have prayed. And right now, Lord, I'm really wishing I had have prayed because, because this is not going to go well. I just said, Lord, I just need you. I'm so sorry. Like, I'm sorry I haven't prayed. I just need strength. I need your filling, and I don't have any of it. And he was so faithful in that moment. You know, to say, Jeff, your prayer life has not been good, but in this moment, I will just help. And now, we, it still didn't go great. It took about till 11 o'clock. We had our wafer strawberry breakfast. But then by about 11, the day just turned around. And if you've heard us talk about the trip, that was the day we visited prisons and just how God so moved in those visits and moved in our hearts. And in some ways, God maybe used those early morning stresses to help us be more reliant on him. So the reminder is, if you have an awful prayer life, pray. If you're too ashamed to pray, pray. If you're afraid to pray, pray. If you're confused, if you're grieving, if you're painful, if you're discouraged, if you're desperate, just pray. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You're lonely. You're lost. You're disappointed. Just pray. That's the lesson here today. Let's not elevate our own strength and let's not underinvest in prayer. Let's be people that pray and call out to God. But you see the journey Peter's on, right? His strength is in himself and his prayer life has diminished. And here's what you know happens in our own life. I see it in mine. Here's the third thing that happens to him. He is impulsive in his actions. And that's what happens to us. We get impulsive in our actions. Look down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed it. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come with him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And what do we know about this hour? This is the hour indeed, when darkness is reigning. And you think of there comes Judas, and he betrays Christ with a kiss. Could it be any worse? One of your closest people betraying you with a kiss. And we could say so much about that. But then in the moment, as his disciples begin to realize what's happening, Jesus is going to be arrested. Some of them yell out and ask a, ask a question. Did you see the question there? Lord, should we strike with our swords? And we know that Peter, this is Peter here who, who acts next, he doesn't need to answer the question. He already knows the answer. This is his opportunity. And he pulls out his sword, and you think of all the people he could have attacked, he probably he picks the servant of the high priest, right? Not the guards, not anyone important, not a soldier, but the servant of the high priest, and cuts off his ear. What might we say to Peter in this moment? First thing we might say is, Peter, this is totally unnecessary. It's totally unnecessary. Jesus is perfectly capable of handling this situation. Peter, you've seen Jesus calm a storm, You've seen him feed 5,000. You've seen him heal people's blindness and open their ears and the lame walk. You've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Peter, certainly Jesus could handle this moment. He's perfectly capable. 
But when we get sort of confident in our own strength and we get prayerless, then we just think, no, no, we got we to gotta act. And we start doing all sorts of unnecessary things. That's exactly where Peter has ended up. Then here's the other thing. Peter, this is just not very wise. It's not only unnecessary, it's unwise. And we know how we get into unwise decisions, right? Peter, you're outmanned significantly, right? This is futile. This is not the moment to start the armed revolution. If you're planning that, this is not the moment, especially when you've just woken up out of a sleep when you should have been praying. Peter, this is not the moment. And Jesus is not leading a violent revolution. He's not known as someone, he doesn't want to be known as someone who's armed and dangerous. So it's unnecessary, it's unwise. But here's the other thing. Peter, you're just missing the entire big picture of what God is doing. And when we get overconfident and prayerless, what often happens is we can just miss all that God is doing. See, Peter's looking in on this arrest and he's thinking, everything is going wrong. This is wrong, this should not be happening. But Peter, what he does not realize is that Christ has surrendered himself to the evil that is going to unfold. And there is purpose in all of this suffering. Peter doesn't realize that this night and this next day as Jesus is crucified, he's not thinking in 2,000 years we're going to be calling it Good Friday. He's thinking this is horrible Thursday night and it's even going to get worse on Friday. Right? That's what Peter's thinking. This is no way. We're, we're out, God, we're way outside of your plan, so I've got to act to get things back on track. I've got to fix this. Right? And that's what happens. We get impulsive in our actions when we get confident in our own strength and we become prayerless. Let me say it this way. Just think maybe in the last week or the last month, last year, just think of someone you know, and I'll just use this word, they have done something incredibly stupid. Just like incredibly stupid. You're like, I can't even believe how stupid that was. Like, what were you thinking kind of stupid? You sort of know the category I'm in, right? Someone's done something like that. And then that happens, and here's what we think when we're overconfident and we're, we're prayerless. We think, okay, that was so stupid. There's no way this could ever work out good. I got to fix this. I got to act. I got to do this and that. And God, your plan's off, off kilter, so I got to get it back on track i, I got to fix all this up. And we start acting because that was so bad. we got to correct this. But can I just reframe that moment for you as you might think about that? As you might reframe someone doing something incredibly stupid? Here's, what you could, here's how we'll reframe it. God, that was so incredibly stupid. Everybody saw that it was wrong. How come you didn't stop that? And God, that was so stupid, you could have stopped that. In fact, it would have been quite easy. There could have been all sorts of factors that could have led to you to change in course. Not, not God didn't cause it, but God, you could have stopped it. You could have changed. You could have done something. And so, God, if you didn't stop that, then you must have a plan in the midst of that. You must have a purpose in the midst of that. God, you allowed that to happen. And therefore, as one of your followers, I can trust you that you could actually, in the midst of that, work something good out. That's what it means to settle here in that. Now, the opposite of being impulsive is not being passive in our actions. That, that's not what I'm teaching. The idea is not suddenly, okay, now I just do nothing and I trust God. But no, okay, God, let me not be impulsive, even in that incredible stupidity, God, even in that, Lord, you're in control. You can work this for good. So help me to go back and depend on you, not operate in my own strength. Help me to be prayerful. 
and invest in prayer, and then God, out of that, out of that foundation, help me to act wisely. Help me to act out of a spirit and operate in a spirit of trusting you. That's what it means. That's the opposite of being impulsive interactions, to operate when we're saying, Lord, I sense that you're in control, even in this, and I trust you that you can make this work for good, and so inform my steps. Help me walk in that confidence. And then we see as this portion of the story ends, Jesus just reached out. It's such a simple and small miracle, but it speaks volumes. He just heals this ear of the servant, and he's healed and fixed. And then Peter continues on. You think this would be the end. You think Peter might sort of wake up and say, okay, I just need to spend some time praying right here. Right? I'm impulsive. I'm out of control. None of that. And lastly, we come to sort of where Peter ends is he is reckless with his words. We would say often where this ends in our own lives is we are reckless with our words. Look down to verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. He said, then a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And that's his signal. Right? Jesus had said, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny me and disown me three times. And that's exactly what Peter has done. That's exactly what's happened in this moment. There's no way, again, these are three denials, and each one is worse than the last one. They are progressively stronger. There's no way Peter says, oh, you just didn't hear me properly. You've misunderstood what I said. No, these are denials of Christ, each one very drastic. How do we understand this word denial? It's like the opposite of the word confess. The Bible tells us we need to confess Christ, acknowledge him, and here Peter does the polar opposite of that. He denies Christ, says, I want nothing to do with him. Uh, the Bible says we are to acknowledge Christ and deny ourselves. And here Peter does the exact opposite. Think of this for a moment. Peter has spent you know, near three years with Jesus. We would just love one day with Jesus, just to see what he's like, you know, to sense his love and his heart and, and how to be with Jesus would want to lift you up to, to be a better person, right? To live with his life in you. Think Peter's had three years of that. Think how much he loves Christ. What he said earlier was sincere. He, he wants to die for Christ. He wants to follow him. That's sincere. But yet in this moment, here you see his great love for Jesus. And when Jesus is at his very worst, he just denies him. He just moves away from Jesus. And not only just moves away, but, but he, he operates to save himself when he's in a far better situation than Jesus. Think of the pain and the hurt that's in Peter's heart in this moment. This is horrible. This is heartbreaking. This is devastating for him. The one moment where he wanted to stand with the one he loves so greatly, and he just misses it. 
You see why he goes and weeps so bitterly. What do we learn here about true discipleship? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's not so much what we promise. What Peter is teaching us here is that what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus is when the pressure's on, when others are looking in, we say we will deny ourselves and we will stand with Christ. We will acknowledge Him. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church family where so many of you have lived this way. So many of you have moments where you have said, I will stand with Christ. And I'm immensely thankful for the examples of your lives. And even though as we remind ourselves and we celebrate that, there's also a reminder here. There's always new opportunities to stand for Christ. They come every week, every year. They come, as Peter would find here, when they are least expected. So we celebrate our past standing for Christ. And we also mark that there are new opportunities. And Lord, may we live dependent on you, not in our own strength, so that we too, we may also stand for you. So we could end here this morning. We've seen Peter's downfall. The four things, he's overconfident, he's prayerless, he's acting quickly, and his words are reckless. And I could end and just say, okay, so everyone go and don't be like Peter which in some ways would be good advice, right? We learn a lot from Peter's downfall and we see that we don't want to be like him. But here's the problem. We have been like Peter and we are like Peter. We have had moments where we have failed, where we have sinned, where we have denied Christ. And so the question we come to this morning, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope? No, we don't want to continue to be like Peter. We don't want to be like him when we want to learn. But, but when we do, is there any hope? And think to my opening story about Jessica, the PR executive, who goes viral because of her tweet. And her reputation is damaged. Is there any hope for her? Or does she just for the rest of her life have to be defined by that one tweet and just have to wallow in that mistake? Is, that what, is there any hope for her for redemption? Well, that's what we love about this story. We see Peter's downfall, but we also see his restoration. You'll see the last two verses on the side screens. Let me read them for you. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I love that little bit where it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Think of that in the midst of all that's going on in Jesus' life and the trials. Somehow in, in God's sovereign way, he arranges it so just after the rooster crows, Peter and Jesus can look at each other and Jesus turns and looks straight at him. I've been trying to figure out what that look is like. Like what's actually there because we know that so much communication is nonverbal. And as I've thought about it, some of the look has to be a look of truth. It's not like Jesus was saying, oh, Peter, no big deal. Everyone makes mistakes. The, the look would have been Peter. It would have not in any way diminished what he did here, his denial of Christ. The, the look would have been full of truth. But yet if it was just that, if he was just upset and angry with Peter, he didn't even have to look. He could have just pretended, right? He just could have looked the other way. But the look is because of love and compassion and grace towards Peter. And that has to be part of the look as well. He turns and looks straight at Peter. 
the best as I can describe it, it's a look of hope. It's a look that there is redemption is possible. It's like Peter here at your worst moment, if you're wondering if Jesus can love you, the answer is yes. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You certainly don't deserve it right now. But he is looking at you, wanting to love you in this moment. And it's a reminder to Peter that he can go to Christ and he can receive the forgiveness that he wants. And that's why I think Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. This is a weeping of repentance. Peter has felt the weight of what he has done and he's weeping before God. And God, I have sinned and sinned deeply. We often think of David's sin in the Old Testament. Adultery, murder, you know, deceiving the nation. So many things David did. But we also are reminded that David was a man of great repentance. Psalm 51, as he gets caught in his sin, he says, I am the man. And in Psalm 51, he writes, I have sinned against God and God alone. I think Peter is having this same kind of repentant moment here where he's realizing the depths of his sin and he's calling out to God. I know there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse just makes us miserable, right? All sorts of emotions and we're just filled with guilt, but remorse never gets us to God. Judas, I think for his betrayal, he was remorseful. But he never was repented. He never got to God. But Peter here is repentant. It's the beginning of his repentance journey where he realizes his sin and the depth of it and he's turning in faith to God for forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon talks about it and we're not sure, if it's, or not sure if it's true or not. But from this moment forward, any time that a rooster crowed, Peter would weep. And it would be the sense of he would remember his sin but he would weep because he would remember the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God in that moment for him that he was forgiven and covered. There's a story from the 1500s of Martin Luther. If you know him, he led the Protestant Reformation. Faith by grace, uh, faith, uh, or, yeah, faith by grace alone, or salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. Martin Luther's leading the Protestant Reformation. But the Catholic Church, because of that message, they imprisoned him. And he was in prison in the Wartburg Castle for quite a season of his life. And during that season, he was quite productive. But there was other times where he felt like the devil was attacking him and accusing him. Almost the devil was there present with him. And he writes that he said the devil would make a long list of his sins, just in his mind. But he pictured it as a long list of sins. And he'd point out every one and say, Martin Luther, look at these sins. And he kept adding to the list, accusing Martin Luther, you are a pitiful person. You are a pitiful Christian. You deserve and will end up in hell. And Martin Luther wrote to a friend saying, I'm in a great spiritual depression and I just can't get out of it. And then on May 24th, 1521, he encountered a breakthrough. And this is what he wrote to his friend was his breakthrough. And you'll see his quote on the side screens. Here's what he said. It's all true. Satan and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's God, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? He's saying, Satan, you know, in this sort of just, you know, dialogue with him, you're making a list of my sins. You can add some more on the list that you don't even know about. They're all true. They're all true. Write them all down there but then at the very bottom 
write these final words, I'm cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the story goes that when Martin Luther had this breakthrough, he had an inkwell that he had been writing in, and he picked up the inkwell and he threw it on the wall as if to break it and say, nothing else will ever be written on the list. The last thing at the bottom is Christ cleanses us from all sin because of his blood. And as the story goes, you can still go to Wartburg Castle today and see that ink blotch on the wall as a reminder of this breakthrough of Martin Luther. And that's what Peter celebrates here in this moment. That's what we celebrate. In the midst of our failure, in the midst of the depth of our sin, Christ comes because of his cross and cleanses us of all sin. And we know how this story unfolds. Next, in John 21, we see Peter restored. Three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And then he says, feed my sheep. Peter, out of your sense of weakness now, out of your sense of weakness and dependency, go and feed my sheep. And then some 50 days later, Peter is standing in front of the, of the crowd on Pentecost Sunday. And he preaches a sermon 50 days later after this moment of weeping bitterly. And he preaches to the crowd and the Bible tells us that 3,000 people are saved on that day as a result of Peter's sermon. And if you remember how Peter ended that sermon, here's what he said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You just imagine Peter preaching that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And why can he preach that so confidently? Because 50 days earlier he had sinned and he is living in the forgiveness of God. And yet people on that day who responded to that message would have been actively involved in the crucifixion of Christ. And Peter's saying to all of them, come and Christ will forgive you. Come and acknowledge the forgiveness of sin. So what do we learn from Peter? We see his downfall. And we say, Lord, help me to live in your strength and to be prayerful and to operate with my actions in a spirit of trusting in you. But what else do we see? We see the way back. That as we repent, God forgives and restores. And if there's hope for Peter, the good news is there's hope for all of us. Join with me in a word of prayer. Just would you bow your heads. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. Would you just maybe take a moment and just celebrate that in your heart? That all of your sin, the depth of it, has been cleansed because of Christ. And then maybe this morning you're someone who has never turned to Christ. You've had a defining moment and you feel the depth of your own sin. And wouldn't today you just turn to Jesus? He's died for you. He wants to cleanse it. To give new life and new hope. And wouldn't you just turn to Christ and say, Jesus, I receive the forgiveness you offer. And then lastly, how's your dependence level on Christ, your strength or his? How's your prayer life? How's your, how's your, how are you acting out of a, a sense of God's sovereign control over all things? And just talk back to him about that and just say, Lord, help me in this area. Help me in my, my failures just to continue to seek after you. So Lord, we thank you for Peter. God, we see so much of ourselves in him. God, I pray, Lord, your help and your protection. God, we don't want to end up where Peter ended up. So God, help us, Lord, to live each day, each moment, just utterly dependent on you. But then, God, we pray also, Lord, that as we have sinned and see the depth of our sin, Lord, oh, we pray that we would also know 
the wonderful grace of your forgiveness, your cleansing, your hope, your renewal, and, oh God, uh, that there are new beginnings in Christ. And fill us with that hope, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Uh, in a moment, I'll invite you to stand and we'll say the four words that we end our service with. Just a couple of announcements. One is uh, this Wednesday night, I'm leading our discipleship training time, how to disciple one person or a group. Would love to have you join us for that. You can sign up online. And then my every week reminder, after we dismiss, just find someone you don't know. Ask them their name. Ask them how long they've been coming to Harbor. Just let's all be greeters this morning. And then let me invite you to stand this morning. Here's the mission We've heard the good news of Christ's forgiveness. Here's the mission that God has for us. This is how Luke records it. This is what he wants us to spread. Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Let's go preach that message. Harbor, we are sent.